Hello, and welcome to the Employee Safety Podcast, where you'll hear advice from experienced safety leaders on how to protect your people and business. I'm your host, Peter Steinfeld. Today on the show, I'm speaking with Andrea Davis, founder, president, and CEO of the Resiliency Initiative, a crisis and risk management planning consultancy. Andrea held previous leadership roles in business continuity and emergency management at major enterprises like Disney and Walmart and served as the Director of External Affairs for FEMA. She talks about which business disruptions are top of mind for her right now and how organizations can stay ahead of them. Let's listen in. Andrea, it's great to have you here. Thanks for taking the time today. Thank you so much, Peter. It's wonderful to be with you. Excellent. Well, let's go ahead and start with your background. You were at two very large organizations at the onset of the pandemic, Disney and then Walmart. Talk about trial by fire. What was that like for you at the time? Oh, <laughs> it still feels like a little bit like a, a nightmare. <laughs> and I was with the Walt Disney Company for seven and a half years and then got the opportunity to come to Walmart. And my first day on the job with Walmart was January 6th. 2020. And I was super excited taking this opportunity, had led the department at Disney, the world's largest entertainment company. And now I'm coming to to the world's largest retailer running emergency management. So I professionally saw it as such a great opportunity. Obviously, little, little did I know what was kind of lurking in the background this little thing called the coronavirus breaking out in China. And China, as far as a market for Walmart, is one of the largest, both from retail, but then also the manufacturing side and supply chain. And I had experience with outbreaks before. Kind of in my brain was thinking that this is going to be like a SARS response, like this is a SARS 2.0. But never, Peter, did I envision what we were to see, like the future of as we fast forward into the pandemic where Disney, every theme park closed, their cruise ship stopped. There was nothing for no sports for ESPN to film. There was no movie filming. And so I never anticipated that for part of any of my planning. And then to be at the helm at Walmart and Walmart ends up taking a very proactive role. And in fact, when the president, President Trump at the time declared a national disaster, our CEO, Doug McMillan, took the podium right after the president spoke and said, Walmart is here to support in the response and to help the nation. And we started the planning. And that was Peter, it was like the day like my life changed for forever because it was falling into this surreal. It was just surreal. Here's one of the biggest executives in the world and the whole executive team is planning. We're pulling on the pandemic task force, Jared Kushner, on speakerphone (laughs) to think through the planning of how we're going to do testing sites and to what it turned into, you know, like a couple years worth. And we took Walmart's emergency operations, so their 24-7 response, completely virtual for two and a half years. I've been gone from Walmart for a year now, and it still feels like the surreal, I'm sticking with nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> no, totally understood. I mean, that had to be incredibly impactful. So how did that experience change the way you see business continuity and emergency management planning? I think Peter was like eye-opening to me. And like, like I mentioned about the Never would I have anticipated like the globe shutting down and these massive supply chain issues. We didn't actually have legit supply chain issues. It was more panic buying. So we were familiar with that type of behavior. 
But now this is on a global scale, everybody panicking. And so we start seeing a preview of what's to come when we actually start seeing the supply chain issues, when manufacturing gets shut down and things aren't able to cross borders, in which, you know, fed into kind of a couple of years. We're still dealing with supply chain issues on the long game. And I think that's what I learned most is that I had spent all my time from the planning and that's that's how I started in this business was writing business continuity plans for nonprofits in the city and county of San Francisco 20 years ago 1999 Y2K was the crisis du jour that was my oh, first crisis yes. The planning was always on like, oh, what if you don't have, you know, a third of your staffing? How are you going to be able to go forward? If you don't have your server, do you have a redundancy, like redundant location? Everything was location-based. And then we were forced, forced to go into this virtual box and still do the work that we had all planned to do without the resources. How can you do business if your entire known is gone? And so if you just think through what are those critical functions that you have and how can you stay in business, you know, and just thinking through like, how can you keep yourself whole in an ever-changing footprint? And that's really what COVID felt like to me. We were relying on third-party vendors and suppliers and in key locations, like think of your islands, think of Guam, think of Hawaii. And if on a good day, getting something to an island takes seven days, it's certainly not going to get faster on a bad day. And if your third-party vendor who sells dairy products in Hawaii goes under, we don't have dairy on our shelves. Really like pulling back that onion and showcasing who are you reliant on. That was a huge eye-opener for me, Peter. Huge. So it seems like that's a trap that people can oftentimes fall into in our industry of business continuity and safety as you start to focus ever so more on the tactical and small parts of the problem as opposed to stepping back and looking at the strategy and the forest for the trees. So would you say that it's important to focus on both but not to ignore one or the other? My biggest recommendation when someone's starting to think about this crisis planning, business continuity planning is on the strategy side first. A lot of times I think there's like, I'll just get a tool. I'll get a database. I'll get something to manage the problem for me. But if you don't think about your strategy, that big picture, just those basics that we were just talking about, what are the capabilities we need to be testing? How are we communicating to employees? What are you doing? Like if you've lost Zoom for a week, it's the basic, really unsexy things that people don't spend the time investing in. And then they spend a lot of money and time investing in things that really actually won't help them when the crisis hits. Because if they deferred it, right, deferred the risk of just saying, oh, I'm buying the tool, I'm not going to train anybody in the tool or how to use it. And we won't do the plans because I expect the tool to do this for me. Yeah, nothing ever really unfolds as your plan would indicate it would. It's more that going through the motions of running through and testing those plans gets you into the muscle memory to where whatever does actually hit you, you'll be ready for it because you've at least experienced something kind of like what you're experiencing now. Yeah, it's hands down, Peter. It's all about the process and making sure people have the understanding and that it's just like brushing your teeth at the end of the day. My dad had a mom and pop diner growing up and we were lucky to have a fire extinguisher, Peter, to put out a fire in the grill. That right. was that was our emergency plan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, and I talked and it's so to my hard. dad. Yeah, and I talked to my dad about this, and he said, like, if the pandemic had happened when he was still running the restaurant, we would have gone bankrupt because there was mm. no even thought about how they could do business differently. 
So that's really interesting you say that because to be a really resilient company, it can't be something that you do. It's got to be something you are. It's got to be part of your culture, just like safety. Safety works really well when it's part of your culture. It's not just a checklist that you go through on a regular basis. Same thing with resiliency. If you just make it part of your daily activity, when the disaster hits, you're going to be much more likely to be resilient and recover from it. Oh, hands down, agree with you. And the big companies I work for, both Walmart and Disney, safety first, number one principle for both of them. And it's, they had an entire culture top down that it was part of everybody's job description. Cast members through any of the parks, there's free first aid CPR training. And then Disney even developed a Heroes Award program. So if a cast member saves somebody's life using the training they received, they received an acknowledgement and a pin from the CEO of the company just to really kind of showcase how important that was. I mean, they were superstars, like videos were done of them. And any company that I have seen that or organization or community that really showcases that, you see better building, you see more sustainable practices. It's just really the essence of how everything is operated from. So tell us a bit about the Resiliency Initiative. Have you had any big projects or moments that stood out to you? So it was not on my vision board that I would open my own company. But while I was at Disney, I actually started the Resiliency Initiative. I wanted to help the small businesses and nonprofits just with their business continuity plans. So this is pre-COVID. And it was just... It was a way for me to personally give back. And just to... Because to me, as a in my mind, as someone who really believe strongly in community planning. If you don't get to the heart of it with your businesses and your nonprofits, you don't have a resilient community. So a total side project. Then of course, the universe had other plans for me and jumped into Walmart and leading all the response operations. But I gave the reins of the company to a couple of friends who had been on my team at Disney and they were just helping anybody they could. And so as I'm Knee deep in Walmart response, the team's working on these small projects and my heart is just like, oh, I want to go help and do this. But as they were transitioning to other jobs, one of them through the Resiliency Initiatives named the hat to work with the United Nations on their disaster risk conference, which was in Bali, Indonesia last year. And they were looking for someone who had worked in public sector and private sector and the theme of this cohort was that they were planning was how to tear down those silos and get more synergy when it comes to thinking about preparedness and then also in the response side. And they picked us. They picked the Resiliency Initiative. Wow. And I know. And I was just like, when I got the news, I was so excited because I was captain of the Mal UN team in high school and in college. So this was like a dream for me. Yeah. And, and so... I went into my boss's office at Walmart. So this is January of 2022. And I told him and he goes, what are you waiting for? I decided that moment to transition to running the Resiliency Initiative full-time. And it's been an amazing year. Just hired my fifth person. And I'm just, I'm loving every second of it. And I'm a certified women-owned small business, which has helped open some doors for me, especially on the government side. And I hope I, hope I can do this until the day I die. So I don't have to have to work for anybody again. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. Congratulations on all the growth and by finding something you're so taken with. That's just an amazing thing to be able to do. Thank you, Peter. So you talked about it a little bit, but what kind of clients do you serve today? And what business disruptions do you help them navigate generally? 
Oh gosh, it's been really why I've liked this so much is the diversity of the clients that I've had. One of my first clients was a small Native American tribe, actually where I grew up in Northern California. And they were heavily impacted by one of the large fires last year in Northern California, wiping out their whole fishing industry, and which was the livelihood for this tribe. And because they're in a very remote location. And I know when we think of California, we don't think of like not having access to internet or power, but there is definitely very rural locations. And so what we were hired for was to write a hazard mitigation plan and to help them think through new and different tactics for these known hazards that they have. But then also, is there different ways to be thinking to help them with the greater intensity and frequency that they're starting to see with some of these fires in Northern California? And hopefully when the plan gets approved by FEMA, get additional dollars to help them do some of the mitigated measures that we had planned for. And because they're so remote, on a good day, it's really hard to get to them. There's one way in, one way out, takes about 90 miles. If you call 911, no one answers because the closest services are 90 miles away. And so they have to be incredibly self-sufficient. And one of the solutions we thought about is getting a couple of key members trained in using drones and working with the first responder community that's closest to them and they have a relationship with. And so if they are in need of supplies, that they have another option as far as moving supplies back and forth. And that's not something we would have thought about a couple of years ago, like using drones and having that in that government hazard mitigation plan. So it's unique. FEMA hasn't signed off on it yet. So I I don't know if I can recommend it. (laughs) If they sign off, I'll say, hey, go ahead and do it. (laughs) But it was, I really appreciated the opportunity to kind of think about a problem differently. And then contrast that to some of my private sector clients where it's an opportunity to build their entire crisis management department, soup to nuts, from so not having any business continuity plan or tool not even having a crisis management plan, not having two crisis teams. So helping them, helping the one security guy think through like how they can build this. That's been a really awesome opportunity as well. Well, I love the creativity there. And it sounds like there's some good cross-pollination between those organizations that don't really have a clue what they're doing to those that have all sorts of resources and clues and everything in between. And they can definitely learn from each other. And it sounds like you can learn from them too. Oh, I think so. And that's what it, why I really enjoyed this kind of new venture is because every with every new client, like I'm learning something different and a different way of doing things. And things have changed a lot since 1999 as far as planning and what we think about and prioritize. And our risks, maybe the outcomes haven't really changed, but the risks are different and they're quicker and faster. And having me being able to take that step back and also having an understanding because I was in those shoes, right? You know, I headed departments and for really big companies. And so to understand the constraints, a lot of times that can come with that job, right? You kind of think of the private sector as being, you know, paved with gold and, you know, you'll make millions if you just contract (laughs) for them. No, I was corporate overhead. I didn't make a dime for the company. (laughs) It was like back when I was with FEMA, I'm fighting over for a pin. So... So I can appreciate it, right? And kind of say like, maybe we word it this way. Maybe that'll help get some support for this business continuity planning that you want to do. Well, looking through the end of 2023, what kinds of trending threats to business continuity should organizations be most mindful of? Well, a couple of things that have been top of mind for me is 
I'm really concerned that we're just sweeping COVID under the rug as far as some of the positive lessons learned and what we experienced from that. We're still dealing with a ton of burnout from our employees. It doesn't matter who you work for. We're seeing a huge transition right now from companies and concern, right, of recession or an economic slow turn. But people haven't taken a break. Look, I left, right? I started my own company. And we did see a lot of change from that. But so many employees are just still going forward without really thinking about the true impact that COVID had on all of us. And I worry that employers aren't paying enough attention to that. And that if we don't address, like we work differently now and we should say that. And it doesn't mean that, oh, we're all going to work virtually forever and all that. You have to have a company policy like that. But just acknowledge that things have changed. We all experienced something and that we need to be really proactive in how we think about our employees. So we keep them so that they don't run away screaming to to somebody else because they're our biggest commodity. I mean, we saw that through COVID. And if you don't have employees to do the work, you don't have a company, you don't have a community. And then with that in mind, the supply chain issues are still there. They're still lingering. And and it's all these things are kind of in our back burner now, right? We put them back in our head like, oh, we're done with COVID. But the effects are still there. And we didn't change how we were doing things as far as supply chain. I mean, we had the heat of the moment. People, if they could, they changed, right? They changed vendors, they changed suppliers. But now it's just like, oh, well, we're back to normal, right? This sense. And as opposed to embracing the, no, we're in a different place. And it's not trying not to judge it like good or bad. And then really keeping keeping an eye out on that AI, you know, a fantastic positive invention. And, you know, I was a huge Terminator fan. So I just see Skynet anytime I think of AI, <laughs> but I have an amazing team who are younger than me and that are really forcing me to embrace it. And I wouldn't say it's a risk. I'd say it's something we need to really be aware of and understand how that can help and hurt us and be on top of it. And I just think that's almost kind of what has got us in the trouble with COVID, right? We never really thought it was going to get that bad. Mm -hmm. It had never gotten that bad before. And I just like, well, we don't know. We don't know about AI. We've seen the challenges of disinformation without it. Now think about what can happen with it. And then the increase in in cyber threats, because now we're so reliant on virtual ways of working. And that small little companies like me, that's how I engage my clients. They're all over the globe. We get so busy and stuck sometimes in our ways of doing. And it's just like, oh, well, I'll deal with it when the next pandemic happens. Mm -hmm. You bring up some great points there, that, that whole danger of the mindset of out of sight, out of mind. And I think we will slip into that if we're not careful. So to your point, you have to keep these things front and center. But also to your point, if we're constantly doing this as professionals in this space, you know, the old saying, the first responders take care of us, but who takes care of the first responders? So it's it's really behooves the organizations to make sure they take care of their first responders to make sure they can respond when things get bad again, because it's not a matter of if, but when. Oh, yeah, I totally agree with you. And and we take for granted so much like our first responders, right, that they're always going to be there. And the work with the tribe really taught me. I'm like, ooh, there's plenty of communities that they don't have that as a resource. And I didn't, it was a wake up call of just like, I'm so used to even now living in rural Arkansas, right? I still can pick up the phone and call 911 and get help. 
that is not the case in actually large sections of the world. Yeah. And so how can you get to this idea, Peter, like you were saying about resiliency? And it's certainly not by having a blind eye. It's by hitting it head on and talking about it. But who wants to talk about it anymore, right? Mm-hmm. We're right. tired. <laughs> well, with that in mind, how do you stay passionate and motivated in your work today? For me, it's volunteering. I When I went to the conference with the UN in, in Bali last year, I met this founder of a nonprofit called the Resilience Foundation. He's based in India. And there he was part of corporate India before he did this. And he goes to very rural schools throughout India, usually dealing with kind of like, I'd say, elementary school children and teaching them the basics of emergency preparedness because there's such risk in the rural areas of flash flooding and literally hundreds of kids die each year because of just there's just not the planning. There's no, there are no first responders. There's just no, no help or process or plans there to help these smaller, very remote communities. So it's been his mission in life to go out and just teach the basics and teach the kids who then take it to their parents. And it's really kind of leveraging it. And it's almost started a movement focused on emergency preparedness. So I met this amazing man, Peter, when I was there. And I followed up with him when I got home and said, I want to help. How can I, being in this tiny little business in America, how can I help this? And so we actually adopted five schools last year to to sponsor his training and all the trainers and teach the kids. It was close to um, 300 kids who went through the training and then took it to their families. And then this year, we adopted 10 more schools. And then locally, I'm chair of the American Red Cross board. And I sit on a board in California as well for the California Resiliency Alliance because it's just, I'm really passionate about this. And I think it's through that individual that can carry on and have this ripple effect to tr- show true change. I've seen it. I've just seen that power, that training and exercising and that planning process can do. You can truly save a life by just simple little things. And I love it. And that's that's what keeps me going, Peter. I've seen it. I've seen change. No, that's fantastic. And I think you're right. It's As we were talking about before, resiliency should not be something you do. It's got to be something you are. You've got to be resilient because then you can face any situation that gets thrown your way. Yeah. You got to be able to roll with the punches because the punches are going to come. That's right. <laughs> right? Or not. You got to roll with them. <laughs> Indeed. Well, Andrea, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate the passion you bring to resiliency. Oh, thanks, Peter. This has been awesome. I really appreciate the opportunity. You bet. To get in touch with Andrea or to learn about the resiliency initiative, please click on the links in the show notes. Join us next week for more expert advice to help you protect your business and people. Thanks for listening. I hope you follow the show and let us know what you think in a review. Have a safe week, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media, the industry's most intuitive emergency communication and threat intelligence solution. To learn more about how to protect your people and business during critical events, visit alertmedia.com. Until next time.